Welcome to the Food Founders interview. Uh, Nicks and Kicks is a refreshingly different soft drink brand that wants to give people better choices when it comes to soft drinks. Better taste and better for you too, with natural ingredients, refreshing combinations and the natural benefits of botanicals. They're listed at Waitrose, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Booths, Holland and Barrett, Nando's and lots more. Uh, they're a certified B Corp and currently doing a raise with Cedars. I'm joined by Julia Kessler and we've got lots to talk about. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. Excellent. What what led you to start Nicks and Kicks? So it's interesting because my business partner and I, we're both originally from Germany, which is where my accent is coming from. And we've been living in the UK now for nearly two decades. And when we, you know, we, we, we basically both worked in corporates and we, we noticed that in the afternoon when people want a treat, right, in an office environment, they're getting a bit peckish, that people would gravitate to like a smoothie at that time, right? Smoothies were really, really popular. And then they would go through that sort of sugar spike, right? They would enjoy it, get really hyper and then crash because obviously smoothies at that time were, were super sugary. So we we were always wondering why isn't there something better in the marketplace that is refreshing, tasty, but not so loaded with, with sugar. And we we couldn't really find anything which was like, you know, fitting that bill for us. And the way we grew up in Germany, you know, like blending fruit juice with carbonated water and interesting flavor combinations, that's how we grew up. So then we couldn't really find anything which would sort of fit that bucket for us. So we thought we're going to do it ourselves. Oh, how long ago was that, roughly? Uh, about nine years ago. Uh, okay. So the landscape, I guess, would be quite different for um, healthy soft drinks at that time, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very different now than it was nine years ago. So ha- had you always wanted to start a food business and leave the corporate world behind? <laughs> uh, actually, I, I didn't um, because my my grandparents, they had their own little business, which would I would guess you would call now a deli. Um, and I could see how much work that was and how stressed we were at times. And I thought I never want to run my own business. So, um, it wasn't anything which I particularly aspired to, but I think I was always like very career driven. So when, when I was in my early twenties, I had that really strange goal where I wanted to be a manager by the time I'm 30 and I was ahead of by the time I was 28. Um, and I was always working on supply chain and operations and I loved it and I'm really good at it. But once you're really good at a specific field or subject, it's hard to get opportunities in other areas. And when my business partner and I, we explored those different ideas, I thought, well, it's like a life MBA, isn't it? Like you, you yeah. learn on the job, you're, you're trying different skills. So for me, it was all about, you know, can I learn new skills while also having a bit of fun creating things from scratch? I guess that logistics and um, operations stuff probably wasn't called on at the start of the business, but I guess as you've grown, it must have been quite useful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's definitely useful. I mean, at peak times, I was responsible for nearly 13,000 SKUs in my old job. So I, I know how to manage things at scale. So that's definitely a good skill set to have. Excellent. Um, so what's in the current product range and so how did how did the flavors come about? Yeah, so for us we we always were driven by making great tasting drinks because when you look at Mentel, 
you know, the, the, the number one drivers for buying a soft drink, the first one is always taste, followed by price, followed by, you know, calories and sugar and, you know, other credentials and sustainability. But the number one driver is, is taste. Um, so we, we knew we needed to make great tasting product. And for us, we were experimenting with different sort of ingredients and flavor profiles. But we knew from the get-go we wanted to create something which isn't so fully loaded with, with sugar, is ideally natural. Um, and that is basically where the name comes from. So Nix in German means nothing. And that is because from the outset, we said we don't want to be, you know, creating something which we wouldn't personally drink. Um, but when you strip out all the bad stuff from a product, um, you're you're left with no mouthfeel. And that is where the Kicks bit comes from. So Kicks is coming from the Cayenne we're infusing in all of our drinks, which gives you that ever so slight afterburn. Like it's like a mild ginger beer, really. And we just want to create something which is a little bit differentiated. Um, it's refreshing and a bit more adult than some of the other things which were in the marketplace. So that is what we sort of generated as a design idea, I suppose. And then we just experimented with different combinations. So we, um, um, you know, mango ginger is our hero skew, and we had that pretty much from the get go. And then cucumber mint is like super ultra refreshing. But the way we go about flavor creation is we 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 spend a lot of time. So with with our mint and our cucumber, we tested about probably twenty different types of mint versions because you have you know, when you think about mint could be like spearmint or like yeah, you don't taste like toothpaste, do you? Yeah, <laughs> you don't want that. So until we found um, like ours as a garden mint, which is like really nice, um, it took a while. Same with our ginger, you know, we we want to get the earthy notes and the refreshing notes from from the ginger. So we tasted quite a quite a few different iterations, and that is basically the the whole idea and how we create flavors is something fruity and refreshing with a little bit something different so you know we have fat orange turmeric mango ginger watermelon hibiscus cucumber mint so they're all interesting differentiated flavor profiles and have you created a set of products and, and settled on that or are you constantly seeking out new combinations so when we initially started we obviously had no idea what we were doing frankly so we, <laughs> we just tried and tested what we liked and then went to market with those combinations we are, we're now doing it a little bit more informed. So we, um, we're spending a lot of time in analyzing data, looking at what is, what is trending, what's growing, what's declining. And, and it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative research. So during the pandemic, um, I spent a lot of time in store. I went to a lot of uh, big retailers on a Saturday. And I spent a lot of time in front of the fixture and I just observed how consumers were shopping. And I, I noticed a trend that when consumers at that time were picking up bottles, there was a consistent theme of that um, probably eight out of 10 were picking up a pink flavor, yeah. like raspberry, uh, strawberry, you know, pink lemonade. And and when I interviewed the customers, I'm like, why did you pick up that, that one, right? Rose lemonade. Um, and they're like, oh, because it's pink. I'm like, do you know which flavor you picked up? And they're like, 
oh no, oh need they need they really were just led by the color. And at that time we didn't have a pink drink. Um so so then I'm like, right, we're missing a pink drink in our portfolio. So then that was the initial sort of hook. Okay, I need a pink drink. And then we experimented with loads of different flavor profiles. We could see that watermelon was massively trending in the States as well as in, in Switzerland. So I'm like, okay, so watermelon. And water, getting watermelon flavor right is really difficult. So we had to experiment quite a lot. And then and then we, we saw that hibiscus was tra- trending a lot in Beyond Trade. Um so then we we combined them and, and that is how we created our first pink drink. But the hook was we needed a pink drink. So I, look, I mean, you just that's the sort of thing you wouldn't find out by with it without going and talking to someone in a supermarket, isn't it? And understanding what it is exactly. For. That's fascinating. Um, I, I'm assuming that making your drinks natural and uh, and, and sort of health beneficial is, from, has been something that's kind of been baked into the business from the start. Absolutely. Um, how how have you found the process of finding the right flavors? You said there's been quite a lot of experimentation. How, how have you kind of balanced the flavor with the nutrition and the uh, uh, you know the the kind of calorie content, those sorts of things? Yeah, so I think we we always you know push uh, push what's possible to the limit. But very initially, we were juicing drinks ourselves and we were blending it in our own kitchen. And when you take a concept like that to a production side they're like we can't do that right because obviously what you develop on your kitchen table is completely different to how you actually then produce on mass and our very first range was still and we then within the first couple of years we learned that actually the consumer didn't really want the store product they needed they, they were missing the fizz because it's more refreshing so then we decided, okay, we we need to, we wanted to make it lightly carbonated, and the sort of, you know, the the bubbles we use, um, the the same sort of bubbles you use in champagne, because we wanted to have a sort of celebratory moment. Um, so it's like lightly carbonated, it's not over the top, and getting all both levels right, like it's it's just those of trial and error, to be honest. Now that we know what works. When we have an idea, we now work with a proper flavor house and I tell them like, here's what I want. And they turn it around pretty quickly because we now understand how we work and what we are looking for. Um, but, but that's basically, I think the first couple of years, it just takes you a long time because you learn all sorts of things like, you know, pasteurization units and the level of heat and how long it takes to cool the product down when it comes off the assembly line and like all of that stuff, which I, had absolutely no idea about the first time someone asked you what type of bubble you want in it that uh, you realize that there's a lot of lot of decisions to make <laughs> we've talked a little bit about about kind of consumer sort of research have you done consumer testing sort of focus group type work or, or tasting kind of work as well and what what kind of things has that that told you it was really scary actually we've done uh, focus groups in-person focus groups and I mean, we've done both qualitative, quantitative, and um, but I think the in-person focus groups were the, the scariest ones because you put your product in front of them, you sit in the room. So we were sitting in the room as observers. So you know, the consumers have been told that we are new, we are new to the research company, and we're learning on how to do research. 
and then the consumer engages with your product and you have to sit there and just listen to it. And you're like, no, it's not bad. It's not bad. You got it completely wrong, right? You know, I remember like the first time there was, because we, we have sharing bottles and small cans and one of the first consumers took the bottle and shook it really vividly. And I'm like, oh my God, because, you know, in her mind, it was a cordial. And I'm like, oh my God. But that was so insightful, you know, just watching those consumers interact with your product for the first time and all the assumptions they're making about your products, you know, and just listening to what they do. It was super, super insightful and scary at the same time. So you're manufacturing at scale at the moment. Did you kind of go through a sort of, did you go straight to manufacturing or did you sort of sell locally? I suppose you can't carbonate sort of locally, but yeah, how did you scale up? I guess is the question. Yes, yeah, so we like I said, like initially on our kitchen table, and then we gradually um like grew. We we had a small fellow in London initially, but then once we made the decision that we wanted um to carbonate it, we needed to find other manufacturers, and and that was I mean we we changed manufacturers three, four or five times, and it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard and. And I think at the, at the beginning, you just make so many mistakes because you you don't know what you don't know. So you're, you don't quite know what to ask for and what to look for. And we, uh, we had a lot of, um, a lot of mistakes made, uh, a lot of stuff we needed to write off, unfortunately, at that time. Um, so once, once we realized what we needed, that then it's a bit easier because at the beginning it's also it, like you you feel like you're the customer because when when you try and find a supplier when you're super early in your stage, it's it's absolutely uh, uh, not impossible but it's really freaking hard because you need to convince it, yeah. them. Yeah, it's super difficult. You need to convince them to spend quite a bit of time helping you develop a new concept, making it. But nobody knows if it's going to work or not. So it's really, really difficult. Um, and I completely underestimated that because, you know, I, I looked after millions and millions of units in my old company and, um, the, the suppliers, they were proper suppliers, you know, we, we didn't have like the, the level of hoops we had to jump through to even find suppliers to take us on was incredibly hard. Um, so now at scale, like it's, it's definitely easier. You, you can be a little bit more uh, demanding than you can be at the beginning of your journey. Yeah, you've got, you got some proof points, haven't you? Did you take your product into work or had you already kind of quit your job by the stage you were making the, the first version? The stars really, uh, I guess, aligned for us. But like my, my business partner at the time, she, uh, she quit her job. And a month later, I got made redundant. So, oh. um... <laughs> so the, the universe was telling you it was time to time to do the thing. Exactly. Um, I, I did. I did work a little bit on the side, actually, as a recruiter for supply chain roles. So, um, and and I realized that's pretty hard. Um, but, <laughs> but yes, I I did that for the first year, like just to get a little bit of extra cash and while we were building up the business. Ah, that's a useful a useful um, lesson for for other founders, I think, isn't it? To to have a have a multiple income sources when you when you're getting off the ground. There's an impressive list of. Um... Of stockists on the website what what has the approach to sales been as you've kind of scaled up the business and, and grown so i think what probably most founders have in common is that we are passionate and naive at the same time so we 
Um, <laughs> so you, you don't you don't understand the rules at the beginning, and that's obviously quite helpful. So I didn't know how hard it would be to get you know your first customer to take it, um, and you know ultimately list, getting a listing in Tesco's, which you know most most people aspire to. A lot of brands never make that. I think for us. We uh, we had a very differentiated pro- flavor profile and concept, so it's interesting. So people generally are like, oh, that's that's new, that's interesting, that's a different approach to what we usually see. And I guess you have to just be ultra confident. And we uh, we build it up from the ground. So we initially just went around central London, you know, door to door sales. So my my kitchen was my warehouse um, for the first two years. Um, and I had basically a kitchen and a cardboard warehouse, so that was fun. And and I delivered it straight from from there initially. And basically, I, I remember my very first sale, which was in Brixton. So I went back home. I loaded up. I had like a little trolley, and I weaved it onto the bus. And then I weaved it to the location. And then that first moment where somebody gave me money for what we produced, that was pretty cool. And and I guess you just learn through field sales. You learn what resonates with customers, and when you build your, you know, you can build your rate of sale assumptions, and then you take those learnings to the bigger guys. But I think with the bigger guys, you you just really need to demonstrate like why is it different. And I think that's that's why the the field sales aspect really worked for us because we understood. It works in Delhi, it works here, it works here, it doesn't work here. So we can be quite vocal about which consumer it it, it is used for. Um and then I guess like over time you you learn what's really important to them, which is like insights, rate of sale, cash margin, profit margin, like all of that stuff which I had no idea about at the beginning. Aside from the supermarkets, you are listed in, in some other interesting places, sort of food service and and um and catering kind of things. Did that come after the supermarkets or was that a step towards getting listed in the supermarkets? Yeah, so we intentionally um build it up in contract catering and food service initially. Because A, we, we want to make sure that the concept is actually, you know, best product market fit. And, and luckily we've done that because obviously the first concept to the concept what it is now massively changed. So we uh, intentionally started out there. And actually even now, like that is one of our sort of major channels because for us, it's all about how do we bring the zing to that 3 p.m. occasion in the afternoon. And that sort of environment is perfect for that. So now we are 100% laser focused on impulse and that is basically contract catering, co-op, meal deal, you know, those sort of places where the product fits and that's the occasion where the consumer is buying us. But I think they both support each other. So we, we have quite a lot of, you know, consumers who discover us in their workplace and then either transform into a subscribe and save customer on our own website or then start buying us on Ocado or or in Tesco's. So it works really well. It helps with brand awareness and and driving trial effectively. And and let's say we've, we've talked about the stockists in the UK. Are you looking beyond the UK? I'm I'm guessing with with the name resonating in in German, I suppose you I assume you are. So yeah, so it's interesting because actually Germany we we're we're not really selling because it doesn't really um 
the German market is, is very, very different to, to the UK market. But one of the markets where we do work incredibly well are the Netherlands. So the, the Netherlands, like the concept really resonates with them. We, uh, we're about to get into the largest supermarket chain called Albert Heijn. They have nearly 50% of the marketplace over there. So it's big equivalent of Tesco's in the UK. So we're launching with them in February. And the concept there works incredibly well. So international is nearly 30% of our business overall. And next year will be probably closer to 40%. So the, what I always like to talk about is like the concept works in the Caribbean islands. Um, so we are in the British Virgin Islands, Jamaica, um, but then all, all the way to Taiwan. So we, um, yeah, we definitely created a concept which doesn't just work in the UK. It works pretty much across the world. That kind of leads me to how you've kind of evolved and funded the business so far. Is it is it are you okay to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I think um, one of the things which I underestimated is how uh, working capital intense that business is. <laughs> and I think it's that plus also you obviously you do need to invest into into your listings, right? Like the, the product unfortunately doesn't move itself off the off the shelf. So you need to run price promotions, you need to spend a bit of money on, on marketing to make sure that there's brand awareness, especially in a category like ours, which is um very um crowded. So you need to be able to to stand out from the crowd. So the uh, we have raised capital you know, over the last seven years, a couple of times, pretty much all from high net worth investors and angel investors. And then two years ago, we did our first crowdfund and um, we're, we're just doing it right now again. How did you decide to use Cedars and um, what was involved in, in getting that off the ground and, and why have you gone back for a second round and what are you hoping to achieve with the uh, the investment? Yeah, so with, with Cedars, I think, one of the things which people underestimate is how much due diligence they do. Like the level of due diligence they expect is uh, humongous, really. And and I think if people would know more about that process, they probably would be even trust the platform more and invest more because they they really like in our current round, as an example, we talk about that we are you know, sold worldwide and they're like, prove it, you know, and we <laughs> needed to provide invoices to demonstrate that we are doing that. Um, same with um, the fact that we um, have long-standing relationships and we talk about that on the platform and like, again, prove it. So I had to show them an invoice from five years ago, three years ago and now to sort of demonstrate that we have a long-standing relationship. And I think that is the bit which, when we've done it the first time, we underestimated, uh, because it's a lot more work than you initially thought um, it would take. But the good thing is, once you've gone through it once, going through it the second time, you still need to do quite a bit of due diligence, but it's not even, right, yeah. it's not as high as the first time round. And I think for us, the reason why we went back to the crowd now is we uh, we basically we have a good proposition. We're doing two million run rate right now. We um, um, have a lot more proof points. I think the brand is a little bit more well known than it was even two years ago. And we uh, we have what's called EIS eligibility. So they, it's like a really good tax scheme for investors. And I literally have um, an extension until 
January. So it's a really good okay. opportunity for investors to come in now. And it will be our last sort of crowd round. So we, we thought it's a really good moment in time to do it because we have so much momentum. We're, we're getting that listing in Albert Hein, like I said. We're getting a second skew into co-op from January. So there's a lot of great stuff which we can talk about now. Um, and the lab, the, the business really is like on a stepping stone to really explode and growth. So it's a, it's a good momentum. And what we want to do with that money is exactly that support the new listings, um, invest a little bit more into the team because we have a very skeleton team at the moment and just support the growth. Brilliant. Well, we'll drop the link to the Cedars page in the, uh, in the show notes as well. So people Thank can look you. at that. So yeah, I think you've just touched there, but I, I guess what are the goals for? developing the range and the business sort of going forwards have you got a, a detailed five-year plan or is it more more fluid than that so we, we do have a detailed plan um maybe not five years i think you know anything beyond sort of year two is really more um projections than actually reality but for us it's more about actually a simplicity rather than adding more complexity. So for me, it's all about actually streamlining the range, streamlining the amount of customers we serve and serve the ones we have better. And and really focus it all on that 3 p.m. moment because I think founders sometimes get a little bit bored with their own range, especially if they're doing it for a long time, like I have. And then you're like, oh, I need something new. But actually, when you think about it, you know, our brand around is still very small. There are still tons and tons of people who haven't even heard about the original range. And for me, it's all about like, how do we scale that up? Because we know that the core proposition is working and it's working really well. We just need to get it into more hands. So why that is, because you start a business, because you can try out new things and learn and bunch but for me it's all about like actually you know, bringing it in streamline it and and focus on deeper and better distribution points for for the existing range brilliant uh and i guess uh you got time for one more question sure. I, I guess i always i always find it interesting and you, you have touched on this a couple of times is what are the most important things you've learned and is there something in particular you wish you could go back and tell yourself at the start so i think if i could go back in time at the start, the biggest learning is really for me is is find a really, really great supply chain partner early on. Because when you when you fall in love too much with the idea you created on the kitchen table, to find someone who can match that is really difficult. And it turns out what we created on the kitchen table is what we're selling right now anyway. So I think it's it's coming back to what's the idea, what's the problem you're trying to solve. And then finding someone relatively early to help solve that with you. Because I think in food and drink, it's, you know, there are so many technical aspects which you sort of underestimate initially. And and I think that's probably the, my number one learning is like find good partners early on, as opposed to think too much about the brand. Other people might completely disagree with me and they're like, no, brand is everything, get the brand right. But for me, it's like, no, find find really good partners who support you along the journey. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to to see what's next. It sounds like a, a global brand in the making, really. Thank you. Excellent. Brilliant. Uh, thanks, thanks, Julia, for your time. Nixon Kicks' Cedars Round closes on December the 15th. 
And you can learn more about that and find out where to buy their drinks at nixonkicks.com. You can listen to more episodes of the Food Founders Interview at froghop.co.uk forward slash podcast or search for Food Founders Interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Julia. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye.